hey Jack, can you see my screen where it has your PowerPoint presentation on it? Yes, absolutely. I wish they had hot buttons where I could just cycle through the three. You, me, and the PowerPoint, but it doesn't look like it. So you can't see that PowerPoint right now, right? I cannot see it right now. Yeah. And it should, I'm going to start talking. It should bring me up. Does it have right now you're a big picture and I'm a small picture. Okay. Yeah. I see it on my, at least on my screen is we're equal size. Okay. And I guess it's just depending on our, I don't have it on speaker view. Now I have it on speaker view. I have it on gallery view. We're equal. Um, where do you go? Oh, okay. I see there speaker view. Um, if I pin this video, all right, for, for the broadcast, I'm going to pin the video so that you are the bigger screen and I'm just kind of a side commentator. Okay. And I'm going to cycle between you, uh, and the PowerPoint presentation. I think that'd be great. Yep. Yeah, that looks good because then I can see it. Oh, you can. I can see this. I can see the presentation now and I can see both of us. And then what I'll do is once we go over like this, I'll come back and I will, I guess I'll have to exit out of that, but then that brings us back, back to, to double screen. Yeah, we're equal size. For you, it will be, but on my screen, you're bigger, and uh, that's how the broadcast will go out. Okay. Yeah, whatever. And then I'll go back and forth there.
All right, let me get my notes in front of me. Send it over. And I'll let you know before we go live. And I'll do the uh, introduction uh, in the beginning of the video, and then I'll Perfect. hand it back over. That sounds good. Yeah, just I'll follow your lead. Sounds good. I know it can be a little bit like, what's going on? I can't see his computer. Yeah. Okay, I'm, I'm clicking the go live now. Am I still there? Yep, I'm here. Sure. Setting up your meeting for Facebook Live, it's loading. And we should be live. I'd like to welcome everybody back today to Alabama Care. I had the absolute pleasure of being here with Mr. Jack Carney. Uh, Mr. Carney is a partner at Carney Dye Law Offices in uh, Birmingham, Alabama. Someone that I've known uh, for over a year now, and we've worked together, and I'm very appreciative of the support and guidance that Jack has given me and my family. And today we're gonna be talking about guardianship and supported decision-making. And at this point, Mr. Carney, I'd like to hand it back over and I'll and give you the opportunity to introduce yourself. Great, thanks, Alex. I'm happy to be a part and uh, happy you invited me today. Um, as Alex said, I'm, I'm Jack Carney, a practicing attorney uh, here at the Carney Dive Firm. We're a three attorney firm and we focus on the areas of wills, estates, probate administration, guardianships and conservatorships, and special needs planning. Um, and I have been personally practicing for almost 18 years uh, in this area. And uh, again, ha happy to be here today. I think it's a great topic and a lot to talk about. Now, are you originally from Alabama? I, um, I grew up in Northport. Uh, I was in the third grade when I moved there, and I am a native of Pennsylvania. Uh, Alabama is basically home, but uh, I still root for the Eagles. All right, what part of Pennsylvania are you from? Outside Philadelphia. You ever heard of Quakertown, Pennsylvania? 
it sounds familiar, and I, I sort of have I have that third grade understanding of Pennsylvania geography since that's when I lived there. <laughs> yeah, I grew up in a town uh, kind of about forty five miles north of Philadelphia, so that's that's funny. Okay. I didn't know you're we, from that area. You were near Valley Forge. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, so today we are going to do more, um, instead of me asking questions, we're going to do more of a presentation and then acknowledge the chat um, throughout. So at this point, I'm going to share my screen and it will be a presentation that everybody can see. And Mr. Carney, do you see that now? I do. Yes. Good. Okay. Let me make sure I can go through here with my numbers. And we might have to do it a different way. How's that sound? Can you still see that? I can. It's perfect. Okay, so I'll, uh, go ahead and take over. That'd be great. Well, I appreciate it, Alex. And again, I think you mentioned that before about the chat. And if anybody watching today has any questions, please ask those. Uh, it is always the best part of any type of educational presentation is your questions. Because uh, that really does help everybody. Um, so we'd love to do that and completely flexible in how we're presenting. But basically what we're talking about today, um, we can call supported decision making. Um, the purpose of this is when we have someone in our lives, whether that's a child, a sibling, a parent, any loved one, any person that we're caring for who cannot always make decisions for themselves, or maybe they don't make the best decisions for themselves, and they might need some assistance, how do we help them? And what type of help is necessary? So part of what we're gonna talk about today is supported decision-making. What are the different options? Uh, maybe looking at personal estate planning for parents. You know, Does my personal estate plan protect my child and do I have a decision-making team in place should something happen to me? Uh, and then protective proceedings. You know, Many times this question comes up, where folks will come to us and say, my child has a disability, my child just turned 19, I'm told he or she needs a guardianship, what do I do? And so that that's, gets this process started about what does that actually mean? Is a guardianship necessary or are there some other means? And that's sort of what we'll talk about today. Now you mentioned um, uh, parents may say my 19 year old kid, do they need guardianship? That hits on a really good point. At what age do you notice that parents start to really think about this process? I, I would say, you know, quite honestly, it's uh, 18 or 19. And, and that's one thing that's interesting in Alabama, the age of majority is 19. It's not 18. That's the age of adulthood in Alabama. So somebody's fully an adult. So a lot of times, if somebody's caring for their, their disabled child, once that child turns 19, they're legally an adult. And really, mom or dad cannot legally speak for them. So a lot of times, Alex, people will be, you know, maybe a social worker or case manager will suggest they're 18 or they're 17. You need to start thinking about guardianship or what you're going to do when they're older. The other time people ask is when they, when they hit what I call a brick wall. I'll give you an example. You know, I've known somebody, her, she's caring for her adult disabled daughter. Her daughter was in her 40s, and she cared for her very well for her whole life up to that point. And one day, a certain doctor said, Mom, I can't talk to you. I can't involve you in this conversation because your daughter's an adult. Well, Mom was a little thrown, you know, aback. Yeah. She's always been involved in those conversations. And finally, you know, she understood that technically – 
legally she wasn't allowed to be involved and her daughter didn't have capacity to give her that right. So she had to go through a guardianship. So sometimes that happens too. Folks will hit that wall and then they have to do something. So it is kind of front loaded around the 17, 18, 19, but then you do see some instances where it's later in life. So if anybody uh, had a son or a daughter or a family member that was maybe 16, 17, right in there, this is something that they're going to be thinking about in the next few years. It is. And I would say get comfortable with it because technically we don't want to file for one. If, if a protective proceeding is necessary, and we'll talk about that, it might not be. I think that's one thing to kind of take away from today. I hope it's not always necessary to do a guardianship. There are alternatives. And so I think it's worth thinking about. And maybe you could use those years of 16, 17, 18 to start thinking about things and putting a plan in place. Guardianship is not necessary for everyone. Um, it's, a, it's, a, it's, it's another tool we have. And, you know, when, it, when the time comes, though, I've had some parents that their child's 16 and they want to go ahead and file for guardianship. And that's premature. We need to wait until you're on the cusp of your 19th birthday, mm. if not just past. You know, maybe because technically when you have a 16-year-old, you are, you are their guardian as mom and dad, legally. Even when they're 18, you're legally their guardian. Um, so we, we want to start thinking about that, but not file until we get up to the point of that birthday is imminent. Uh, very good. So after the first slide, we do have uh, um, <clears throat> two uh, people in chat. I'd like to acknowledge Maria Gutierrez says, for the families that have a love with one with a high functioning autism, are there any other options besides guardianship? Yeah, absolutely. Great question. And that, that, that leads in perfectly to what I was just talking about. I want to want to talk about um, is less restrictive alternatives. Um, and so, for example, somebody who's high functioning, who has what we call in the legal world capacity, they have the requisite capacity to sign legal documents, that person can do a power of attorney. Um, that individual can do a healthcare directive. They can appoint mom or dad or an individual of their choosing to handle things for them. Uh, so absolutely, and I do think that should be our first attempt, you know, mm. of doing something is because that's the less restrictive alternative. That's not taking any rights away. That's letting somebody get some assistance. Another good example had a young lady that was in community college. She had a learning disability, had a, had a disability as well. Mom and dad were trying to talk to the school about her accommodations and the school would not speak to them. And so, because again, she was 20, she was an adult. We cannot release any information about this adult to you, even though you're her parents. Mm. We had daughter who had capacity sign a, a power of attorney and granted her mom and dad that ability to manage her business, financial and educational affairs. Sent a copy of that power of attorney to the school, problem solved. Uh, they were able to work with mom and dad as her agent. So there are a few different levels there, um, kind of power attorney all the way to full guardianship. And I did get a chance to, to go through your, your presentation. I know you're going to be speaking about all of those sure. things. Um, so Mrs. Gutierrez, I think the question that is, there are many options. Many options. And starting, you know, again, I, I always like to start with the less restrictive one rather than jump right into guardianship and say, can, and we'll talk about that. Can somebody, uh, you know, do a power of attorney. And we'll, we'll share something with the ABA, that's the American Bar Association put out. It's called the Practical Tool for Supported Decision Making. And it's basically a process and you can do it yourself. 
um, we'll have a link for it. Alex will put that out there where they give you a free worksheet and it guides you through the thought process of what are our options um, based on the need and based on that individual. Uh, Mr. Carney has shared that link with me and I will make sure to put that in the chat after we are done live here. Um, next question, Marcy uh, Bose, I need to know if they are receiving a disability check, will this change in Alabama at age 18 or 19? Yeah, it, it's, a, it's a great, great question. A lot of times, and it just depends on the type of disability, but in Alabama, 19 is the age of majority for state law purposes. For the federal government, it's still 18. So if, and I'll give a good example, if something happened to me, my daughters would get a social security survivor's check until they become an adult based on my social security work record. They would get that because they lost a parent. They could claim off of it because they're minors. When, they, when my daughters turn 18, they lose that benefit because under the federal law, under the federal guidelines, they're an adult. Gotcha. So there's a little bit of a gap there. Um, but it, it works in a favor too because you may um, have an adult disabled child. Let's say, you know, I've, I've known somebody that they had uh, somebody with Down syndrome. They were living at home. They were always going to live at home. Um, when they turned 18, even though Alabama doesn't consider them an adult, the federal government does. They were able to apply for SSI disability benefits mm. at age 18. And that child was able to start getting a $785 check for disability. Prior to age 18, they're deemed a minor for federal government purposes and mom and dad's income and assets are counted when doing a disability analysis. So it, 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 in some cases it works to advantages, some to disadvantages, but absolutely. 18 is, that's an important distinction with age of majority. Uh, it's kind of, yeah, it's a little bit different there, federal and then state. One more we're gonna go with and then we're gonna get back to the uh, presentation here. Mrs. Gutierrez follows up and says, if a person has a guardianship, can the person lose their right to vote in Alabama? They could, and, and that's a, that is a big uh, question, and we're gonna talk about that with guardianships versus limited guardianships. Because when you are, um, and one thing we're gonna get into, um, what does a guardianship mean? A guardianship means you've taken that person's rights away from them and given them to somebody else. And that's done to protect the person. We, we sometimes call them the ward. I don't like that term, but that's what the law says. The ward or the protected person is what I like to use. And so it is possible that they do. It doesn't mean they can't vote. Um, do they have the requisite capacity to vote? If someone has a full guardianship, I think that their capacity is questionable for most anything. So I, I like to see it maybe where it's limited and certain rights are specifically preserved in that guardianship document. Thank you for answering those. I'm gonna go ahead and share the screen again here. So uh, just let me know that you can see that. Again, perfect. Okay, perfect. And we'll go to um, the next slide here and follow along. You can, yeah, yeah, you go through this quickly. It's just a little bit about our practice, the type of work we do. We have three attorneys um, at our practice, myself, Shannon, and Jenny. And there's our website. If you have any questions, you can feel free to reach out to any of us. And we all have experience dealing with these issues legally and then personally. Um, Jenny's a mom of two, uh, two children with special needs. Shannon's uh, the sister of a brother with autism. Um, I've been a caregiver for someone with special needs in, our, in, in my family. So um, we have that real world experience too, which, which again, this is why I like your questions because those of, those of you that are out there dealing with this, 
uh, has so much better insight than sometimes those of us who are, you know, stating the legal rules. Yeah, I'll, I'd like to add on top of this. I've met um, all three individuals listed here as the attorneys. Everyone is very nice. Um, and you guys probably remember Jennifer from back in April when we went live um, with her, uh, which you guys had a lot of questions and a, and a really great output. So we're going to continue going through these slides. As you guys have questions, we'll take breaks uh, and ask those. Okay, protective proceedings. What's that all about? Yeah, and, and we covered a little bit with this. This is the same example I use. Just say we have a beneficiary who's who's 23 years old, an adult, as I mentioned before, um, in Alabama, uh, he cannot, uh, he, mom or dad cannot automatically speak for them. And so just as an example before, if you're trying to talk to a school administrator, if you're trying to talk to a doctor, if you're trying to talk to anybody, somebody at the bank about their account, you can't do it um, without authorization. Now, if that individual has the ability to give you authorization, that's one thing, and that can be accepted. Now, I'll use the example, I give authorization all the time. Every time I go to the doctor, they ask me to fill out a HIPAA form. It seems like we're always redoing them. Yeah. And they say, who can we release things to? Mm. Who can we give test results to? Who can we call? And I'll put my wife down, or I might put somebody else down. Uh, very similar concept. So as a default, they will not talk to my wife because it's my, uh, it's my record. Um, in a real world example, I remember when we had to change something with our cable provider, my wife wanted me to call and I didn't want to call, but she said I had to call because she tried to call, but because it was in my name, they wouldn't speak to her at yeah. all. So, and, and that's to me, that's one of those roadblocks, those brick walls you hit every once in a while. You may be able to navigate it for some time, but eventually you're going to hit a wall. And somebody's going to be a stickler for the rules, maybe, or maybe, I mean, it's a good thing sometimes, you know, but somebody's going to be, you know, strictly construe that. And uh, you're not going to be able to do something. And our goal is to make sure that we have, you know, protective proceeding is the top. At the worst, we need a protective proceeding. At the bottom, we need some kind of delegation. Um, another good example, um, if you just have kids that are going away to college, especially these days with the current environment, we have seen a lot of college students signing powers of attorney and healthcare directives and HIPAA release forms. Because uh, they're away at school, if they get ill, and mom or dad wanna check in on them, but they happen to be across the country, if they call the student health center, the student health center might not release that information without those documents. And yep. that person, you met somebody that had to deal with that, her son was in a car accident, uh, she heard from a roommate. She tried to call the hospital, see how he was doing, and they would not tell her. So she had a, he was fine, but she had a torturous four-hour drive to where he was, not knowing what was happening. Yeah, and as a parent, that's got to be just irking. So, yeah, so it's one of those things, and you think, again, I've been there too. I'm, I'm dead. I should know what's going on. And that's true while my kids are minors, and then the law, again, like the law does, and it does it for a good reason, uh, they're adults. And at a certain point, they have to make their own decisions. And that's kind of, again, why we're here today is what about when they need help? Yeah. And you talked about delegation there with the TV thing. That can be a big pain. I've gone through that. Um, but, you know, worst case scenario, it's okay if I don't have the TV for a night or two. But when you're talking about healthcare and serious things, that makes a huge difference. It, it can. And it's sort of one of those things, just uh, regardless of what, you do and hopefully that's what this process is today is to just be prepared 
to think ahead. A lot of times when we're doing these types of documents, whether it's a power of attorney, whether it's a will, whether it's a living will, we hope we don't use these anytime soon. We really hope we don't, but it's almost like car insurance, homeowner's insurance. It is such a level of protection. And if something happens, we are so grateful that we had it in place. So again, it's all that thinking ahead. Yep. Very good. Okay. Let's go back to the uh, sharing screen here. <clears throat> and uh, we will go to uh, speaking for somebody else. Yeah, and we and this is again, we might be able to cycle through a couple of these. Nineteen in Alabama, age of majority, uh, for for the for for most things, and it does not matter. I have had situations where we've had a child who was profoundly disabled, could not communicate, could not understand what was going on, and I remember the parent being so frustrated that they're saying, "I have to put my child on the phone." in order to do something. And they don't understand that that's, my child's never been able, will never be able to do that. And I could not get that across to them. Mm-hmm. But again, this was a person, I don't necessarily fault them just going by the book. I need, they're 19 or they're 20. I need to speak to them. To them. If not, I need to speak to an authorized agent or representative. That's, that's kind of our part of when we talk about, you know, protective proceedings. Okay, we'll go on to the next one here. Um, yeah, and this is, right on. yeah, great options here, speaking for someone else. And I think the, the beauty of this, this applies for whether we're talking about a, a loved one with a disability. This applies whether we're talking about a parent, an, an elderly aunt or uncle, grandparent, anybody. You know, do what are the levels? And these are in order here, you know, from least restrictive to most restrictive. What are the ways we can speak for somebody else? You know, they can authorize us. Like I told you about the doctor, I can authorize my wife to get information. Power of attorney, I can authorize somebody to speak for me as an agent and to do things for me and to bind me as if they're me. And then when we get into guardianships and limited guardianships, that's where a court is taking somebody's rights, maybe not all of them, maybe a few of them, and giving them to somebody else. And, and, and so I, I look at it as, you know, the guardianship, we'll talk more about how you get it. The guardianship to me is more of a serious option and we go there only if we have to. Sometimes when I'm talking to families, whether it's dealing with an elderly loved one, um, I have somebody I'm talking to recently about a sister who needs some assistance. The guardianship is the nuclear option because we have to go to court and get someone declared incapacitated. We only do that if we have to. So as we had that great first question, if someone has the requisite capacity, and we'll talk about that, to sign a power of attorney, I would much rather them do that because it's immediate, it's quick, it's cheaper, very simple to do, um, and it does not involve the court system, and it does not involve taking away someone's rights. They still completely have all their rights, they have all their dignity, and we can help them. Now, one thing to think about is, if you don't have the ability to sign a power of attorney, then you're really stuck with a guardianship. Mm-hmm. If you don't have capacity. And sometimes I will, I, I remember going to meet somebody needed a power of attorney to handle their mother's affairs. She was older. She was sick. I went to meet with them. I felt really bad because I knew this person and I had to tell her, I cannot let your mother sign this power of attorney because it's too late. She was too far gone. She didn't understand. She didn't even know I was in the room. 
I, I could not let her sign a power of attorney. She didn't understand. So we had to go a guardianship route. Mm-hmm. So it, sometimes you're just stuck with guardianship. The other thing to think about, uh, just a concept to get to understand is when someone gives you a power of attorney, if I sign a power of attorney and I give, I make Alex my agent, that means he can act for me. But that also means I can still act. So I've not given away my rights. I've just delegated them and someone else can do them. So there are times when someone might have a power of attorney, but then they start acting out or people start taking advantage of them. In that case, we might have to do guardianship to shut it down and protect that person. Mm. You know, so if I start going and just giving my money away to anybody who asks, even though Alex has a power of attorney, he might be able to monitor it. He might be able to stop it. But I could also try to revoke that power of attorney and keep going. So at that time, we might have a guardianship. And it's interesting, in most powers of attorney, you'll notice, and I remember when people would ask me, why does it say this? Why do we need this? It is a clause in every power, almost every power of attorney that says, if I need a guardian or conservator, I want to name, I want the court to appoint my agent under this power of attorney. Mm -hmm. So whenever you sign a power of attorney, you're nominating your own guardian or conservator. You might not even know it. I did not know that. (laughs) And so, and, and, and the reason for that is when the time comes, if that person does act out for lack of a better term, we'll take that power of attorney, file it with the court and ask to get the agent appointed as guardian or conservator, and I know I'm throwing a couple of legal terms around, we will talk about those. Okay, good, as I know those will be questions, and I like how you circled back there to the question. So, Mrs. Gutierrez, there are a number of options that are available um, under full guardianship there. Uh, let's, go, let's go ahead and share screen again. <clears throat> so, what is guardianship? Yeah, guardianship, and it is a good distinction in Alabama, and in some, some states they might have different names. But, but basically, I call these protective proceedings overall. And it's where, and there is two basically in Alabama. It's where somebody, or sometimes an entity, is appointed to take care of a person. And in that case, a guardian is someone who takes care of the individual, is in charge of the person, um, where they live, what doctor they go to, what kind of a health care they get feeding them, clothing them, you know, just like we do when we raise our children. We are their guardian of their person, and we are responsible for their individual well-being. The similar proceeding is what's called a conservatorship. A conservatorship is a guardian of a person's property. So when somebody, and and, and the reason, you know, we're not all naturally conservators for our kids, because as I remind my kids, they don't really have anything. Yeah, not yet. (laughs) Or if they have something, they spend it so quickly, they don't have it for long. They don't need a conservator usually. It could happen. But a conservator is where a court appoints somebody to manage the money of somebody who can't manage it for themselves. So interestingly enough, you may, in your situation, you may have, if you need a protective proceeding, you can have either one of those or you can have both. Mm. So those are some things to think about. You might have somebody, uh, let's say you have a loved one who can make all their decisions about themselves. They're good about healthcare. They can take care of themselves. They can tell you where you want to, where they want to live, but they can't manage money. They just are incapable of managing money. You know, sometimes people, I've, I've worked with people who just didn't understand numbers and just that was their issue. They couldn't, they could not work with money. That might be a case where they get a conservator, but not a guardian. Yeah. So, so they can run their own lives. The conservator just manages their money for them. So it does not have to be both, but there, there is a distinction, two different roles. 
It's like having like uh, somebody as an accountant friend help you out. If that's just a little bit more struggle for you. It really is. And you know, I go back to what we'll talk about in a second. We talk about levels of care. That may be a solution. You know, you may have a situation where you don't need a conservatorship. You just may need somebody to set up a system where they check, they help you do your bills every month, or they monitor your bank account uh, and just kind of check on some things. Make sure you're not giving away five grand in one month to one buddy who asked for it. There you go. I mean, it's kind of something I think we all do. We do naturally anyway for our kids. Um, we do naturally for our parents. And a lot of times, again, I use elderly parents a lot because um, that's something I deal with a lot. Um, you know, children may check in on them every so often. You know, maybe very informal. Maybe, you know, mom or dad, let me look at your tax return for you before you sign it. Let me, you know, if you did it yourself, let me just take a peek at it. And then maybe then it's you escalate and get a power of attorney. You do a little more. And then maybe one day you're doing their taxes for them. And then what, you know, then one day you're kind of handling everything. So it's kind of the same. Again, I think about it as levels and only going to the level that's necessary. Um, When we speak like this, I almost feel like it's cyclical. Like it's the process of life. Um, You know, we'll all probably have to get there eventually one day with our parents um, or our children. Uh, in in some special needs cases, but it's it's not anything that should. I think a lot of people get nervous about it when they hear these big words. But <clears throat> it, you shouldn't be. This is something that we'll all have to go through. It is, and it makes it so much easier. And you know, Alex, I I see that a lot, and I often wonder because sometimes I see people fight it. You know, and again, I think it's how you approach it. You know, if you automatically go into somebody, and this is why I think levels make sense. If you go in and say, all out of the blue, I'm taking over your life. Give me your checkbook. I'm in charge. That's traumatic. Yeah. That's, 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 that's not, that does not necessarily respect a person's dignity. There's ways to do that. I think in a nicer way, maybe kind of gradually. Um, but people fight that. And I often wonder, you know, I, uh, you know, I, I realize as I get older, I can't run as far as I used to. I can't remember some things I used to. I, I still, I still can, but you know, every once in a while, I was like, Oh, I can't remember that name. Um, and I often wonder, am I going to fight this when I'm older? And I've often thought about writing a letter to my future self telling me not to fight it. This is natural, you know, because one day I'm not going to be able to drive if I'm lucky to live long enough. It just, it just happens. And I like to think I'll turn my keys over to my kids and tell them they have to get me everywhere I want to go, um, you know, if they're going to take my keys. So part of acceptance, but for our end, it's, it's you know, it's how we deliver it sometimes. Mm-hmm. And how we gradually work into it, or like I said, with a guardianship, it does not have to be a full-blown guardianship. It could be limited. Yeah, because and it rights can be retained. And I feel like that may change because I could be very um, thick-headed, and I know when I get older, I'm not going to want to give up my driving rights or you know those kinds of things. I just know that. Um, but it, it'll have to change as the years go on, and um, you know, finding that balance wherever it is as it goes through time. Right, and this I kind of like to hope I will remember where I am now and what I've seen and that when it's time for me to sort of step aside or let my kids help me, you know, I think some of the hardest things to do is to let somebody help you. I know mm-hmm. that's one of my struggles hard. Um, even if you need it, it's still hard. And, uh, and that's kind of, that's kind of like what we're talking about. I think we're talking about supported decision-making is we're just helping somebody. And how do we do How do we best do that and respect them? That's maybe the, the, the overall theme for today. Now, uh, you say supported decision-making there, and I hear the term thrown around quite a bit. Um, 
are, would you consider yourself um, a supported decision-making team member for the people, uh, for some of the community members that you help? I, I, I would, um, I really would. And I think when we, when we start working through our practical tool, one of the things that we'll do is assessing who's on that team. You know, who, who's on that side? Um, because a lot of times being a, you know, you have a team and everybody's got different involvement. You know, you may have somebody on the team who's daily involved. They're checking on somebody every day. Um, that may be their role. You know, you may not need a guardian. And I've seen this in my family. Some, a loved one might not need a, a legal guardian, but they may need somebody to drop by that house every day and make sure the fridge is full and they're eating. I mean, that, that, that's, a, that's a member of the supported decision-making team. Mm -hmm. um, legal counsel, financial advisor, um, social worker, case manager, friends are all part of that team uh, just to kind of give some guidance. Yeah. You know, what, do, what do we do now? How do we address this? Mm -hmm. it's almost Is like it having, time to go to the next level, maybe? It's like having your own board of experts that you can just ask questions to. It, yeah. it is, and it's sort of, it's one of those things that, um, and I know you've done a lot, give a shout out to Full Life Ahead Foundation, you've done some things with them. Yeah. See how they have their, the team and the hope team they talk about and kind of having people to help give, you know, a disabled child the best life possible, and brainstorm and give ideas, sort of the same concept. And I love that idea of a community team to help us. And again, I go back, we'll, we'll all need it. I mean, I, I've had, elderly parents were the, the kids were the team they were mm -hmm. the support team and they all had different roles and, um and but their main goal was to take care of somebody who needed some help yep okay i'm gonna go ahead and share screen here i'll go back um let's go to eight uh yeah go ahead this is an important one um you know guardianship we'll talk a little bit about the process it's a process it's a legal process you you're actually filing a petition in the probate court. That's the court that has jurisdiction over an individual's rights for themselves. So when you have a guardianship conservatorship proceeding, it's the probate court and it's the probate court in the county where the protected person lives or where they're present. So it's really interesting. We've had cases where somebody might live in Mobile but because their protected loved one was happened to be in Jefferson County for treatment for a month or two, Jefferson County has jurisdiction. Hmm. It's where you're physically located, the, the protective person that is. And you have to file it to proceeding. And as you can imagine, it is a, it's a, it doesn't take a lot. And it's not, it's not as you know, terribly frightening as you might think, but it's still a legal proceeding. You have to file a petition. You have to have a hearing. Just one second, guys. Hold on. <clears throat> Seems like a little internet connection here. We are going to give it a few minutes and then jump back into what Mr. Carney was saying. Either that or it's on my end. Um, let's go ahead and repin. And uh, we'll give it a second here. Mr. Carney, can you still hear us? I'll go ahead and put my ugly mug up on the camera so you guys can see somebody. Um, looks like he got booted out. So I'm going to go ahead and invite him again.
and shouldn't take too long. This is some pretty cool stuff that he's talking about here. Um, I have uh, known Mr. Carney, like I said, for a little over a year, and he has helped with uh, my family member. We um, had a transfer of guardianship, and my grandparents were guardians for their daughter. And uh, my grandfather, when he passed away, it was decided that I would become guardian. And uh, I didn't know really what to do. Mr. Carney, Carney LLC Law Offices was recommended to me by a friend. And I reached out to him and he just kind of took my hand and walked me through the process. I would say it probably took about a month, uh, maybe a little bit longer to uh, send off the documentation to the court system and get a, a results back from that. Um, but it, um, he's kind of touched on it a few times there. Like someone will call my cell phone asking for my family member. And I have to say, well, she's not, she's not available. Um, she cannot speak on the phone or understand what you are saying to her over the phone. Um, and they say, well, we can only speak with her. And I say, well, I'm her guardian. And they go, oh, okay. You know, so, um, then it's okay from there. Let me, uh, go back and make sure he got this email. What do you guys think so far? Keep me company on stream. I want to hear it in chat. Nobody, you're not going to give me any love. Nobody's going to say hi and keep me company on stream while we do this. <laughs> um, I do want to, while we take a break, I do want to give a shout out to a few people that have always been uh, helping to spread the awareness. Um, Kim Spangler uh, has been absolutely awesome on, uh, you know, sharing posts, um, getting the word out. I also want to thank um, Tammy Moore, uh, Tammy's, Tammy was with Full Life Ahead when we initially started doing broadcast and was critical to the success and, and setting up and being on screen. And she continues to, um, you know, advocate. And then I also want to give a shout out to Jennifer Terry, uh, Jennifer Terry and her family always being supportive and, um, sharing and being a part of the community. Ms. Gutierrez, I appreciate you. Um, you're asking, so if it happens that you move to another state, do you have to update the guardianship? Great question. Um, and it looks like Mr. Carney is back with us. So I will start off with that question. Uh, Mr. Carney. I'm I, I think I'm back. Okay, perfect. Here we go. Uh, we, we had a question there. Um, if, uh, if you move to another state, do you have to update the guardianship? You do. It's a great question. Um, when you there, and there is actually a process. So I was talking about for internet blip. It does uh, have. It, it, I was talking about processes. Um, it is a pending matter in the Jefferson. Let's say let's use Jefferson County. Jefferson County, Alabama probate court. Once you file for guardianship, you're appointed. That case is always. Oh, we got a freeze on the. We got a freeze on your video, Mr. Carney. 
Um, Ms. Gutierrez, it sounds like yes, that uh, you would have to switch guardianship there. And Adelia, I appreciate you. <laughs> Thank you for supporting. All right. Can you hear me? Yeah, I can. Okay, looks I, like we're back again. I think we're back, but we'll try it this time. We'll see if we ride this out. We don't have much longer. <laughs> Fingers crossed. Well, you do. You, you, that case is always open. So when you go to a new state, there is a very formal process. It's not hard to transfer guardianship. And that involves, once you get settled in the new state, you file a petition in that local probate court. That probate court will ask the old probate court for the file and the old probate court transfers it over, so it's seamless. You don't have to go through a lot of the same mechanisms. Um, what I will add is that it's still a process. So, you know, we talked about a guardian ad litem. The court appoints somebody to represent your child or your loved one because they want to make sure this is the right thing to do. It's a check and balance. Um, one of the things that slide mentioned is there is a short-form guardianship that the law allows when you are the custodial parent. So you don't, you, it's still a process, but it's not as cumbersome as if you're applying for guardianship for a parent, for example, or if I'm applying for guardianship for a friend. I have to go through a few more steps. If I'm applying for guardianship for my daughter who I raised, and she's now 20, but disabled, it's still a process, but we call it short form. So they try to make things easier on mom and dad who have been caring for this person. About how long does that take to, the legal process from papers being sent in to papers getting back? It, it really depends on the court, quite honestly. Um, I would say you would allow a couple of months. Okay. Potentially, but it depends on the court. Um, sometimes it depends on the need. Um, courts are pretty flexible, but it's a pretty easy process. And those of you who've been through it, you might know, it, when we talk about having a hearing, you have to go see if you have a hearing. Those are usually less than five minutes. It's more of a formality to the judge to meet the guardian, to meet the protective person, make sure everything looks okay. Uh, not contested. Uh, a lot of times it's very low key. So I know I have a lot of clients getting nervous about uh, going to court for a hearing. And um, this is not one of those. This is usually pretty, this is usually pretty straightforward. Okay. I would know yeah, I'm getting nervous. They're, they're on Zoom. I mean, we've done a lot of Zoom hearings for guardianship, believe it or not. Um, we're kind of transforming. I, I, you know, I think you'll do lose a little something if it's not in person, but, um, that's just the way of the world. And it's, it's provided a lot of accessibility. Maybe if somebody that has a disability can't get to the courthouse that day and there's some logistics stuff going on. So I right, can you know, see that somebody that's, you know, maybe a little nervous about going to court courts a lot friendlier if it's in your home Yeah, and court comes to you in a way. So I've, I've seen it work really well. Um, well, you, you guys saw it when I got up. I'm still in sweatpants with a little sweater over top, so <laughs> that's my Zoom attire. Hey, we, when we go to court, we at least have to wear a tie and a jacket on top. We get exactly. shorts on, but we've got at least to have our decorum here. <laughs> okay, I'm going to go ahead and share screen again. Um, and uh, <clears throat> Okay, how to apply. Yep, this is, if, if, if it comes to where it's determined I need a guardianship, what do I do? is we talked about you go to the probate court of your jurisdiction. As I say, most will require an attorney to help you. They won't even allow you to, uh, you to file the forms. You sign a petition to be appointed as a guardian, you're a petitioner. We need a doctor's note. 
So that's a pediatrician, a psychiatrist, psychologist, a, a general practitioner, internist, neurologist, somebody to write a note saying this person, because of a condition, cannot take care of themselves. You know, or this person, in my medical opinion, needs assistance. And then what we do, uh, we, we like to get the consent. It's not really always required, required in the short form, but we do it anyway. The law requires, in most cases, you get the consent of the next closest adult relative. And so when we're doing these, we like to just get everything done up front. And again, if you think about it, that makes sense. If I have a child of mine that wants to take over my affairs and she becomes my guardian, the law requires her to get the consent of my next closest relative or my next of kin, which would be my wife, maybe one of my other children. And the reason that's required is if that child's not doing the right thing, they can kind of raise their hands and cry foul. You know, they can, they can do something about it. So that, that's sort of how the process works. Um, I have a question here from Mr. Dan Kessler. Um, he asked, can someone contest the guardianship? Would they need legal representation? They, they could. Um, and that's sort of why, that is why we have this proceeding and why we have a hearing. I don't know if they necessarily need legal representation. I kind of give you an example. I mean, there might be times when we have a guardianship pending notice goes to the heirs. So let's say I'm trying to become guardian for my mother and I want to take over her affairs. We have to notice my two sisters. You know, we need to get the, you know, I'd like to get the consent of at least one of them, but we have to notice them. Um, we also have to notice my mother. <laughs> she needs to know about it. You know, if someone's going to take her rights away. She needs to know about it. And someone can appear at the hearing that day and raise any concerns. Um, if they have an attorney, I guess that's helpful, but I have been a part of hearings and the judge will hear people out. Uh, probate court's a little more informal where if someone comes with legitimate concerns and wants to be heard, the court will generally hear you um, in, in, when in a contested situation. And I do see that more with when someone's seeking to be a guardian of maybe a parent or another adult where you might have multiple parties each wanting to be guardian. Mm -hmm. Because may, sometimes they have different, because again, we, let's talk about what we did before. The guardian has the right to tell you where you're going to live. And so you might have one child that wants mom to come live with them. You might have another child that wants mom to go to the nursing home because she feels that she'll be well cared for there. There's a difference of opinion. And then, you know, whoever's guardian gets to decide. And a guardianship be revoked if someone um, had a guardian uh, and they felt like they didn't need guardianship, could they go through that process? 100%. Um, and it's great. I had a, there's a judge, uh, Judge Furmeister, Jim Furmeister, was retired judge of Shelby County. And I can remember being in front of him for a hearing. Um, we had a guardianship that we were undoing because she didn't need it anymore. And he was like, he was so delighted. He goes, ma'am, I'm so delighted to do this today. I don't get to do this much. I'm removing the protective proceeding. This is a particular woman who had some mental and physical health issues, but it was due to a medical condition that was able to be treated better with different medicine and she recovered. Mm. When she was in a certain state, she could not make her own decisions. And so she had a guardianship and a conservatorship and they call that a restoration of capacity. A restoration of capacity. That's a powerful phrase. It is. Her capacity was restored. I think that's why Judge Furmeister was so excited that day when he was able to say, I am I'm giving you this back and you're now, you can make your own decisions. We had some medical evidence. He got to meet the person and she was, she did not need a guardianship. And I've seen that a couple of times. 
Um, How in that instance would that individual need the assistance of um, an attorney? It, it's helpful. I mean, it, I, I think so. Um, I mean, not, I mean, technically, just to file the right petitions and to get the right evidence in front of the court. Because sometimes we got to remember, you know, courts are bound. They try to do the right thing. They're bound by the evidence and the record. And in that case, it was really important to get the proper medical evidence to make sure the court's 100% comfortable with doing this. Because we got to remember when the court makes these decisions, they're doing it for the best interest of the protected person. And they're, they're going to be very cautious. Now, um, can an organization be a guardian uh, for somebody? Or does it have to be an individual? It, it can be an entity. And there's a little provision for guardianship where an entity, uh, usually a non, I think it's just something like a nonprofit association, like a group home, mm -hmm. or, you know, the Arc of Alabama or Central Alabama, or, you know, some of, some of these groups and nonprofit entities where maybe someone has nobody in their life, they can become the guardian for that person. They'll be the legal guardian. And I'd like to piggyback on that with the question with Mr. Kessler. Let's say that somebody um, didn't have anybody in state and didn't have any family and uh, they were in a community home and that uh, organization had guardianship for that individual. But then <clears throat> like a sister came back from overseas and thought that, you know, maybe that organization wasn't doing uh, as great a guardianship as right. they should be. Uh, and maybe another organization or her, um, she can contest that as well. She could. She could. And that's where the court's going to come in and look at the best interest. And, and somebody who's a member of that heirs class, if you're an heir, if you're next of kin, that's important. You have the rights to do that. You can come in and, and, and make those kind of contests. It's all about presenting the right evidence to a court. And a court, if you think about it, courts laser focus on best interest. What's best for this person? Having family in their life is, is, is usually best. Yeah. You know, it depends on the family. And then, you know, hopefully the, the organization, I would hope doesn't fight that much or, or if they do, there's a good reason, you know, they might say, no, actually this person, uh, you know, might not be a good influence and maybe we don't want them. And that maybe speaks to another point I want to make sure we cover is we as parents, we as people in somebody's lives, we have some ability to guide this with our own estate planning. Um, there's something called a parental appointment of guardian. And if a parent, a custodial parent, appoints a guardian in a will or in a separate writing, and that separate writing just has to be witnessed by two people, a court will appoint that person of your choosing absent some evidence that they are not in the best interest. Mm. So, for example, I have minor children. I've appointed a guardian. That guardian will take my kids unless someone could show that that guardian is dangerous. Now, someone can't come in and contest and say, I would raise them better. That doesn't count. My choice is made and courts respect the choice of the parental appointee. It's, it's called the parental appointment. It's very special in the law. So we have that opportunity. I would also recommend whether a guardian's a parent or not, if you are a guardian and you have a successor in mind, go ahead and name that person. Go ahead and do a writing. So that if something happened to you, somebody could take that to the court and say, Jack was their guardian. He died or he's sick. He wants this person to be the guardian. Court, would you appoint it? Court will give that a lot of weight. Mm -hmm. uh, so there, I've, I've even had people that have left letters to the court or to you know their guardian saying, 
with some instructions or here's who I want as guardian, here's who I don't want, here's what my guardian needs to know. Some of that pre-planning is helpful as well. Yeah. I feel like sometimes um, in the disability community, guardianship can be viewed very negative and almost too controlling. Um, and what would you kind of say about that? It's a great question. And, um, and I agree. I, I go back to, I look at guardianship as a tool and I'm very much into the supportive decision-making instead of calling it guardianship because I think it's negative for a reason. I think it used to be if you had any limitations, people would put a guardianship on you. Regardless, this guardianship, because there's only, there's like a one, there's like having one tool in the box. There wasn't an understanding that we have all these other tools. And, you know, I, I, I have a link on one of the slides from the Alabama Disabilities Advocacy Program talking about guardianship and less restrictive alternatives. That is a group, that's an advocacy group that has spent a lot of time unwinding guardianships that were inappropriate. And there are such things where people's rights are taken. So I do think it's, it's only if necessary, but if there's a less restrictive alternative, we move up to it. And that includes limited guardianship. I use an example of the rights. What's interesting, a guardian of an adult person, and it says this in the statute, has complete authority over who they visit with, where they live, their mail, every form of communication. If you're a guardian, you have complete control over that, over someone's life. That's all. For a lot of people, that's almost too much. Yeah. You know, I think it's just something to think about. Again, everybody's different. But to, you know, to be able to say who you can see and who you can't see. I mean, we all understand why that's important for a guardian. It's just kind of like, with, again, that's what I do for my kids. I don't want you seeing that person. They're a bad influence. You know, but at the same time, if we're talking about somebody who's an adult, and Alex is where your point comes in, why guardianships do get a bad name, and it's deserved. If we've taken too much from them, I think that's a bad thing. And I think one of the examples would be, Maybe you could be appointed as the guardian, but the protected person still gets to decide where they want to live. Or the protected person can still make healthcare decisions for themselves. Or the protected person can still do certain things. Yeah. Um, and that's so unique. I mean, it's unique to each individual. And again, we got to always remember our goal is that balance. It's a balance in the law, right? It's, we want protection, but we also want freedom. And we got to kind of figure out which we're going to give a little bit on. Well, thank you for answering that, Mr. Kessler. Thank you for asking the question. Great question. I'm going to go ahead and share screen here. And we are. And, and, uh, yeah, I mentioned some of this, and we can probably go through this pretty quickly. This is the after you file for a petition, the court appoints a guardian ad litem. That's an attorney for the protected person. And that's usually just an attorney that works with the court system or somebody like me. I've been a guardian ad litem before. Their job is to call you and talk to the family, maybe meet the protected person, and they make a report to the court about if they think it's a good idea or not. So there's sort of a, a unbiased party, because if you think about it, when I told you the court just has usually a five minute hearing, that's the only time the court ever really looks closely at this. So they're depending on a guardian ad litem to do a little more in-depth digging. So that's what that process is. Okay, let's go to the next slide here. Um, conservatorship, um, that's where you manage somebody's money. And I would tell people, my philosophy on conservatorship is you do those if you have to. And why that is, is that can be a little cumbersome. They're, they're, they're a form of protection. When you serve as a conservator, you must post a bond. 
So you have to you have to pay an insurance premium every year based on the amount of money in question, and that's to protect the protected person. A bond is if you steal their money or if you mismanage it, an insurance company will make them whole. Um, you can't spend a lot without court approval. You have to report to the court. So it can be a little more cumbersome than most people think. One question I get is if, if your child is receiving a social security disability benefit, and let's say you're the representative payee, you don't need to do a conservatorship. A representative payee is basically social security's conservatorship. Mm. So if, and if, you, if you served in that role, and I've served in that role in the past, you have you you gather the money. You're in charge of the account. You're in charge of spending it for this person, and then you have to tell Social Security how you spend it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, they do kind of an audit. I am uh, represented to pay you for my family member, and and it's kind of an end of the year audit. This is how she spent her money uh, this year. So there are times when you only do a you don't do a conservatorship if all you're getting is Social Security. And I've had people ask me, well, should I do a conservatorship just in case? What if my child gets money one day? I would say no would be my advice because it, it, it's so cumbersome. Even if you have nothing to conserve, you still have to go through all these rules. So I'll give you an example of a conservatorship. Let's say I have a 17 year old, he's a minor. Let's say his grandmother leaves him $50,000 and does not put it into a trust. In that case, a conservatorship is probably the right entity. And it would go to a court created conservatorship his mom or I would have to post a bond. We would have to make a report to the court. We would hold it in a conservatorship account until he's 19, and then we would give it to him. That's an example of how it would work. Um, I, I like the idea of if you can find an alternative to a conservatorship, that's better. Um, you can't always do it, but if you can, like a special needs trust, you know, it's a whole other topic. But maybe you, if somebody has money coming in, maybe it goes to a special needs trust, and a trustee can manage it. In lieu of a conservator, there's two advantages to that, or three, it's more flexible and friendly. You can do a lot more quickly. A conservatorship cannot invest in the stock market. It has to be interest-bearing accounts and bonds. That's by the Constitution of Alabama. That's conservator, think conserve. Almost too conservative, because all of us agree these days, if we're gonna invest for any time in the future, we need at least mutual funds. You can't do that with a conservatorship. And you know, and then, Two is just the the bond and the cumbersome court reporting. Mm -hmm. Oh, and a conservatorship, by the way, is an available resource for needs-based assistance. So if you have somebody on Medicaid and SSI and they have over $2,000 in a conservatorship, they just lost their benefits. Oh, that's a big thing. I did not know that. 100% <clears throat> lost their benefits. And again, you might say, well, Jack, you just told me that's not a conservatorship. It's hard to get at it. Can't we say that's an unavailable resource? Well, in some levels, in some ways it is, but for needs-based assistance programs, it is always counted, always counted. So what's very common when we might have somebody that has a conservatorship, if they need to stay on their Medicaid or they need to qualify for Medicaid, we'll move that money from the conservatorship with court order, of course, into a special needs trust. Yeah. And we, not only do we get eligibility, but we get all these other better management features. So this is why it's so important to have someone like you on a supported decision-making team, because there may be a team or a family that goes through that and wouldn't know that it would affect the social security and other benefits. And it's, it's one of those things that they don't know until they know. And that's yeah. usually when you get a denial or you get a letter that says you owe us $10,000 for back pay. Yeah.
been eligible these years. I know Social Security is a different topic, but they don't always move fast, and I get it. They got a big job ahead of them. I don't envy them. They work with a lot of people, but oftentimes you'll find out after the fact that you were ineligible and you might not have ever known it. Mm -hmm. And then they won't back pay. So it's... It does take time. I've gone through the Social Security office a few times and it, you have to be prepared. I think it, you know, it might've been five or six months till we got the rep payee even done. It was crazy. Um, Mrs. Gutierrez has another question here. Will a psychological assessment be required to provide as part of the request for guardianship? And does it have to be within two or three years from the time that you are applying for guardianship? Oh no. What the heck? Okay, we're back. Can you hear me? Back, yeah. So <laughs> internet is that's my internet right now. I need to um switch over to my other internet, but um so the question was will a psychological assessment be required to provide as part of the request for guardianship and does it have to be within two or three years from the time you are applying? Great question. I, I would recommend it, it be as close as possible. Okay, as close as possible. Two or three years might be a little long. I like to see two or three months. You know, maybe if it's six months, that's okay. It really depends on the situation. Um, if it's somebody that the guardian and the court can meet, and they obviously, after talking to them, they say, okay, this person needs some help. A simple doctor's note's fine. Just a one page, paragraph, you know, one paragraph signed by a doctor is usually sufficient. If there's any doubt about capacity or if capacity is contested, a more thorough psychological exam will be required. Hmm. And I'm talking maybe like a whole, a full day down at the neuropsych's office, answering questions, taking written tests, doing assessments. Um, I've been a part of some of those and that may be where someone wants to be guardian for their mother and mother says, I don't need a guardian. And I'm going to fight you because I want to be in charge. That's mother's right. And in that case, a lot of times if the court feels there's enough there, the court will order her to be assessed. And she'll be assessed. And if she, if she passes and she wins, case dismissed. Um, so that, that's a great question. But yeah, it really, it, it depends. Most of the time for our purposes, especially if someone's getting social security disability, already been declared disabled, a very simple note. One page letter is all that we need. Okay, thank you for answering that. And Mrs. Gutierrez, thank you for asking. Um, I will go ahead and screen share here once again. And we will go to uh, the rep payee, which we're talking about. Yeah, we can skip that one. That's just basically, you can still be the rep payee, has nothing to do with protective proceedings. And in a way, if you want to think about it, um, rep payee is a protective proceeding or supportive decision-making. Is a supported decision making um, because you have to show to Social Security this person needs some help, and and then so it is a form of supported decision making. I can add that to my list. Well, that's why it's here too. Um, and then right into supported decision making. Yeah, it's not again going back to it's not the message today is it's not always required to go to a guardianship. Let's only go to a guardianship if we have to. Um, that that's just you know let's start small. Let's start more cost effectively. It just makes sense. Uh, and then let's work our way up to it if necessary. Of course, there are going to be those cases where we can tell as a, a lawyer, somebody does what I do,
we need guardianship. Maybe this person's profoundly disabled. They can't sign anything. They can't speak for themselves. Guardianship's our only answer. And we, we, we generally kind of know that going in. And always, you know, I like the way that you say you always start at the ground level and then guardianship would be the uh, kind of the extreme there. Absolutely. And I, and I would say, you know, I, I have a slide on this one to skip over. Doctors and lawyers, we're trained to assess capacity. I mean, like I made, made before, I mean, my job is to assess somebody's level of capacity and make a determination. Do they understand enough to sign this document? You know, and that just might be the level of, you know, Alex, are you, do you understand that if you sign this document, you know, your mom and dad are going to be able to make decisions for you as if they're you. Are you okay with that? Do you trust them? Do you want that? Do you want their help? And if I feel, <laughs> if I feel, if I, you already said you were stubborn, that's right. You don't want yeah, to know. more decision making. Uh -uh. I get it. Uh, but it, you know, if they understand just that concept, they don't have, no one has to understand the ins and outs of a legal document to have capacity. Do you understand enough of the concept to sign that document? And as a lawyer, I always tell folks, like my friend who just wanted me, even though mom didn't understand, she's like, well, can't, can't, she can make her mark. Yeah. Just sign. And that, you know, I said, well, unfortunately, I don't want to let somebody sign if I don't feel they have capacity because I want to be able to always testify that they had capacity. Yeah. I'll, I'll let it be close. <laughs> I'll, my office, I, my, I joke with my office sometimes. I was like, and it comes to capacity, it's like baseball. The tie goes to the runner. <laughs> We're going to say they have capacity. It, I can, we can be close, um, but there's a certain point we can't go past. Yeah. Uh, you know. Oh, it's important that they understand, you know, it's like every time there's an update to an Apple or an iTunes or something like that, I, I don't read through that, but, uh, you know, it's important to understand what's in there. You understand you're agreeing to everything that's in there, whether you read it or not, when you click yeah. accept. So yep. that's how I look at it. That's a good way to put it. I like that. Yeah. Um, oh, okay, let me. I was just going to say, I'm going to go ahead and screen share here. And yeah. Go ahead. And I just want to go through these pretty quickly. We can go through all of them because I know we, I know we might be running. I don't want us to run, you know, too far over. I know we've had some delays. I just want to show the practical tool. And this is something that's available online. There's a lot more information about it. This is very high level. And there's actually a worksheet. You can fill it out yourself. And it's an acronym. Basically says, you know, we're going to presume that a guardianship is not needed. Again, to me, this shows how the laws changed. I think in 1960, we always presumed a guardianship was the only way to go. Maybe even more recent. Now, the ABA, American Bar Association, is saying, let's always presume it's not needed. And then number two, let's ask, what are our concerns? Let's start writing down, why are we even thinking about this? <clears throat> you know, is this person making poor financial decisions? Is this person not able to live on their own? Um, ask, is this a temporary condition? Will it change? Like my client I mentioned before, who got better with medical treatment. It was, a, it was more physical than it was, you know, congenitive conditions. It was physical. We, we cured it. And so in that case, we knew that going in, we might not have done a guardianship. I think that's, that speaks a lot on disability rights throughout the years, how it used to be just like a one check thing, like yeah, guardianship institution. And now <clears throat> we're going at it from a total opposite direction. Of, right. <clears throat> uh, let's, let's focus on the individual here. Uh, yeah, hundred percent. It's everybody's different and unique. And, you know, I, I think whether you're, 
and, and this is so interesting to me, I mean, whether you're having to be getting a disability payment or not, these are questions we ask for everybody. Yeah. You know, that might need supportive decision-making. I mean, this is for all of us. Um, these are fair questions if, if this comes up. That's why I love the fact that the presumption is now different. Yeah, I do too. And we're going to share that link um, in the comments as we get to a close here. I'd also like to say, as we do start to wind down here and get later into the broadcast, if you guys have any questions, please make sure to put them in uh, so we can address them. Uh, okay, we'll go to the next slide here. Uh, community, see, community, kind of talking about, are there other resources? Are there things in the community? Um, and again, you, you all have Alabama Cares does a good jo job introducing resources and talking about resources. There's, there's countless resources, but this is just pointing in that direction. Can we look at that first? And then number two, team. We talked about, do we have a team and who's on that team for decision-making purposes? Are there siblings, friends, family, advisors? Who is there? And then we get more, as Alex was saying, the individual. Let's look and write down the individual's strengths and weaknesses. You know, as I mentioned before, you might have somebody that takes great care of themselves, but cannot handle any financial decisions ever. Well, in that case, you know, can we, can we, do we need a conservatorship? And maybe that's all we need. Or if that person has capacity, they can give somebody power of attorney and say, can you help me with my money? Yeah. Can you help me with my finances? One good thing we do, I like to do is if someone has capacity, you can have a pile of attorney. Someone can manage the account for them and all their finances. And maybe they give that protected person. It's not really a real protected person. There's no conservatorship. Maybe they give them a small account, a couple hundred dollars in it. That's the, I call that their dignity account sometimes. You know, that's a day, you know, and that, that's their money. They can do what they want with it, but it's not everything. Yeah. And it protects them too, in a way where it's like, you know, if you want to go ahead and, and spend, you know, whatever you want on food or clothes or, or what have you. But if that, you know, if it was my family member and I know that they'd be more susceptible to somebody taking advantage of them. And it is. And it's, and you just got to know as the supportive decision maker and is what the lawyer would tell you, don't put more in that account that you're not comfortable losing. Um, ABLE accounts, and they talked about ABLE before. ABLE accounts are a good dignity account. If you qualify for ABLE, if you have somebody who's disabled prior to age 26, an ABLE account can be a good dignity account because that is the individual's money. And if they have capacity, they can even get a debit card and or a true link card in some plans. And it can, you know, so there is a special needs trust administrator I know who says he puts, he sets up an ABLE account for all his beneficiaries and each year he'll put like a thousand dollars into it. And that's their money to do whatever they want to with. And he kind of jokingly made that point. I thought it was great. He goes, I don't even want to know what they're doing with it. They want to on video games. If they want to go do go to some comic book convention, that's their money. I'm not going to question it. Because as a trustee, you have to question money. As a conservator, you have to look at every dime. Abel might give us a nice alternative. So a lot of tools we have. Maybe that's the, a lot of tools. And I'd like to highlight Enable again. Um, there are a lot of tax benefits to that. Uh, and if you are eligible or a family, family member is eligible, I definitely recommend going back and watching the broadcast or going there. You can bring Jennifer from our office back on. She's a huge advocate. She'll tell you everybody needs one and she'll help you set it up herself, even though that's normally not what we do. Like she's such a big fan of the Enable account. Um, um, you know, I, go ahead. Lastly, just to... 
Uh, challenges, and I love, again, this is thinking us through. If we set up a support structure, what kind of challenges might arise? Give you an example. If we do a power of attorney, that may be great, but will our person re revoke that power of attorney? Will they work around that power of attorney? Are they gonna do things anyway? If so, we need to think through that and maybe structure things around that. Um, and then a point, you know, you notice again, only at the very end do we appoint somebody. After we've done this whole analysis, let's appoint an agent, let's appoint an, you know, somebody to make things for us. And if a guardianship is necessary, let's limit it at all possible. Let's do the bare minimums. Um, you know, let's do exactly what we need. Um, so, I mean, I think that that's just kind of the, the things and the guardianship, as I said here, can be uh, limited um, for certain aspects. You know, we can let, you know, we can limit those matters. You really can't limit a conservatorship. That's a good okay. kind of point. I mean, there's certain, there's certain financial decisions a person can make about where they live. You know, I think you get to limit that. A conservatorship, because you're dealing with a pot of money and you're deemed to protect it, you're either all in or you're all out. Guardianship, there's just, just a huge scale. And you might, you know, you might be limited along those lines that someone has, um, full rights, but you have the ability to make some healthcare decisions for them. things like that. So again, just when you're going through this process, it's a good conversation to have with the guardian ad litem, perhaps with the court, with the doctor, you know, again, if you're doing this practical exercise, you, you've already kind of listed out what are our challenges? What's our number one concern? Why are we doing this? Um, and it might, you might be doing it just to get authority to speak with their doctor. Well, and you ask that question, do they have the capacity to give me authority? And if not, then I'll do a limited guardianship that allows me to have information. You know, little things like that. Um, we will continue here uh, yeah. with ADAP. You've mentioned ADAP before, and um, <clears throat> I'm sure a lot of community community members are familiar with it, but they are a great resource. So like yeah, and I think I put this again at the end, and there's another good resource we have through the court system, but go ahead to their website. They have a brochure, it's 12 page brochure is called On Guard, Making Sensible Decisions About Guardianship. It, it basically just outlines what I talked about is their message is don't be too hasty to jump into guardianship. And if you needed some help with a guardianship that you didn't think was right, or you didn't think there was the right guardian in place, they would be a good place to call um, and, and talk to them. Um, and we will go ahead and put their links uh, in the chat as well. Uh, and again, this is estate planning. You know, again, we started with this prior to a guardianship. Just because someone has a disability does not mean they can't do estate planning documents, just like the rest of us. You know, I kind of say every individual should have a will, power of attorney, and a healthcare directive at least. And maybe we do a generic HIPAA release. Um, but, you know, you can, you know, I've had um, somebody high functioning with, on the autism spectrum that we've signed a durable power of attorney and a healthcare directive so that he could appoint his mother to make decisions for him. And we also did a will for him, you know, and I, I said, and I, it was a great conversation, you know, guess we talk about dignity. You're an adult. You get to direct who you want to be in charge and you get to direct where your assets go. Should something happen to you? Um, and we did that process. So that's not, again, that is available to people with a disability. It just takes someone like us being able to assess them. Hmm. Can they do that? 
And oftentimes we know going in, or we can talk to mom and dad beforehand and ask a few questions and, and just kind of see. And, and it helps. A lot of people don't know how to navigate that sector of that journey. And so whether it's a phone call and just a quick, simple ask, or like we're doing right now, uh, we have a lot of people asking in chat questions that I think are very valuable that I have no idea about. Right. Um, and we have another one from Mrs. Gutierrez. Uh, can you give an estimate on how much it would cost a family from the beginning of the process to the end, including attorney fees? And would you recommend if a family has a question to request a consultation first? Oh, I would. Um, that's a great question. It's always, it's always the most important question, and it varies from attorney to attorney. There's a lot of good attorneys in Birmingham that do guardianship work. Um, there's some entities out there that might help with that too. Um, I would always say you want to request a consultation to see if there's a less restrictive alternative, you know, and, and just to talk through it, you know, because again, if you're talking about, can we do a pile of attorney for just a couple hundred dollars? And can we accomplish what we want? Or again, you know, again, I'm not opposed. So like a, you know, it's all like awareness. It's like, a, you know, Alex and I clicking on those Apple disclaimers. You know what you got to know going in. Could I get a power of attorney online? Would that work? Possibly. But just know going in, it might not be perfect. You know, so it's, sometimes you, I'm not, I'm not opposed to it. Sometimes it's better than nothing. Um, but so you have those less restrictive alternatives. Guardianship, I usually tell people to plan to spend about $1,500 at a minimum. A lot of times that's what we'll tell folks going in. Um, and not all that, usually even with a reduced legal fee, which, you know, guardianship, there's not a lot of legal arguing we get to do or maneuvering. It is, it's a pretty straightforward, but you have a court fee. You have a, usually a guardian ad litem fees for three, four, $500 itself. Um, some court costs going through that process and then legal fees. Um, so around that neighborhood is what you could expect for a short form. If it's ever contested, way it goes way up. Yeah. You can imagine it goes way up. It gets as expensive, you know, I hate to use this as a comparison. You know, we all know about divorce. You can do a quick no contest divorce. That's not that expensive. As soon as you get some contest in it, you can be spending a tremendous amount of money. It's like a new car or more. Well, I'm not there yet, so I can't comment on that. We, we want to avoid <laughs> not not if we can always avoid contests. Again, that's the, the legal system is there for contests, but that's also where the cost gets breathtaking when you start talking about contests. Because it's just when you get multiple attorneys fighting and digging and doing discovery, costs go way up. But to answer your question, you know. I'd say $1,500, $2,000 is the reasonable range for that court proceeding. I appreciate you answering that because that's a, that, that's a process if these families want to take that and budgeting for that is also. 100%. And you may find, you may find folks do that a little more. You may find it may be a little more, maybe a little less. Sometimes it depends on the court. Um, I've seen people, again, it, it, I don't speak for all GALs. I've been there. I was in a case recently where the GAL waived her fee because the family didn't have a lot of means. So you still need a GAL and that might be something you could ask them is, you know, we, we really don't have a lot of money here. You know, maybe we budgeted a little bit of the social security money or we have somebody in an ABLE account. Maybe we pay for it with that. You can use the, the, the protected person's money. Actually, you should. That's, that's really where that money should come from. It should be because they're proceeding. Um, so th those are possible, but, all, but not guaranteed, of course. Thank you very much. And uh, we will go back to the screen share here. We have a yeah. few more slides. 
yeah, we're almost done. We're almost done. So yeah, estate planning is available. We can go to the next one. Yep. Um, capacity again. I, I covered some of this. It's just that there's a certain requisite capacity the law requires someone have before they sign legal documents, and it's laid out as basically having to do with do they understand. Do they understand their assets? Do they understand their family? Do they understand their situation? Do they understand the significance of the act? Those are some of the basics of capacity. What, what, what are you, do you know what you're basically doing here? Uh, and we assess that. Physicians are more on the lines of the technical neurologist, neuropsychologist primarily. Do they have the requisite capacity to function? Um, we're trained and we're told and part of our code of ethics is we, we need to make sure someone has legal capacity before we let them sign anything. And so, and I, I said at the bottom, sometimes it depends on what we're doing, what kind of capacity someone has to have. Mm. So that sometimes can... there's different capacity for a will. There's something called testamentary capacity and there's different capacity for a pile of attorney. That's called contractual capacity. So they're um... similar, slightly different. Uh, another idea is, you know, trust planning. I talked about special needs trust. They can be a great alternative for a conservatorship. Uh, if you can get it to a trust, sometimes the court will put it there for you. Uh, just a real quick example. Examples are the best way to learn for me. Um, had a, a person that had a disability, but he was very high functioning, very high functioning. He, he lived on his own. He drove. He, he lived a good life. His parents left him some money. His parents left him a house. It was great. The concern was he also, he was a very nice guy. He was too nice. If someone asked him for money, he would give it to him. And he was giving away too much. He was giving away enough of his money that it was starting to threaten his livelihood. And so in conjunction with him, we included him in this conversation. Um, we took his house and we took his assets and we put them in a trust. I think about it like a box or a business. Anything in this trust is only for that beneficiary. It's his money. That's what I told him. This is 100% yours. But we're putting his, your brother in charge of it for you as the trustee. So in a sense, brother becomes the gatekeeper. And we had some rules in there to protect our beneficiary. He could fire his brother and get somebody else if he didn't like what brother was doing. But everything was locked up for his benefit. And so if somebody said to him, you know what? You got a nice house there. How about you mortgage it on a home equity loan, sign this piece of paper, and you can get some cash. Could not be done. Trust owned the house. We'd have to go through brother. And so if he needed, so his brother still had it, gave him his dignity account, let him manage his money. And but we were completely upfront with our beneficiary. We talked through it. I can remember a nice guy. You know, we said, you know what? We we're doing this to protect you so that no one can take your funds. You know, and, he, and he's like, yeah, I know. I'd probably give it to him. You know, he was, he was very yeah. self-aware. He's he was, being honest about that. He was very, very delightfully self-aware. And all. again, I hope I'm that self-aware one day Yeah. Um, when I need help. He knew he needed help. It worked beautifully. And we were able to avoid a guardianship and conservatorship. Now, if he would have said, no, I'm going to give my money who I want to. You have no right to do this. And he started doing, giving his money away. We might have had to do a protective proceeding in court, hmm. and that would have been painful for the family. It would have been painful for him. But I like to think his brother, I'll give him the credit, kind of approached it the right way, very gently, very kindly. We're doing this for you. You still have 
I'm still going to do what you said. You still have rights. I'm still going to listen to you. We're just putting it in here to be safe. Um, I did that once for an elderly lady who couldn't stop giving money to one of her children mm. who came by every week. And she knew that that, that daughter had an addiction problem, but she's like, I can't turn my daughter away. Well, she voluntarily put her money in a trust so that she couldn't turn her daughter away, but her trustee could. Yeah. And so she created a bad cop in her life for, and, and with her full knowledge. I mean, again, it was a beautiful use of the trust. I think that's uh, both of those instances are great uses of that trust. I, I mean, that sounds like what they're set up for. It is. It's a great getting. It gives to me. It just got that mentality of it's a tool. How do how can we use it? That does not that the trust like that only works when you have a cooperative, aware beneficiary. Mm. Doesn't work in all cases. But it's a great tool. Okay, let's go ahead uh, back to the, the screen here. And we've got uh, three more slides. Yeah, we're almost done. Um, I just want to throw this out because I give Jennifer our, in our office a credit for this. We have some language we can put in an advanced directive that talks more in detail about mental health care. In Alabama, you, you can get this form online. An advanced health care directive talks about end-of-life care. If you're terminally Ill or injured or you're permanently unconscious, what do you want? How do, what kind of treatment do you want? Our documents is one step up. It also appoints someone to make all other healthcare decisions for you if you can't make them for yourself. We could even make it a further step up and talk a little bit more specifically about medications and treatments that might be related to someone's mental health. So you see like ECT, TMS, there's certain medicines. Um, speak for Jennifer and her daughters. When they did this, there's certain treatments her daughters would want there's certain treatments they would not want that someone might force upon them if they didn't know any better. And so they can make that decision now. An advanced directive is only uh, looked at when you can't decide for yourself. Mm. And this applies for all of us. I mean, you might say, I don't, in your advanced directive, I'm just, moral of this story is you can add more to your advanced directive than you think. If I'm in this condition, I don't want this treatment. You, you get to say that now. If I'm in this, I don't want ECT treatments. Or they're very, or you could say they're very beneficial for me. I want them. I need them. Put that in your advanced directive so that the decision maker you've appointed will know what to do. And the doctors can honor their wishes. Very so cool. Very, very neat. It's a very nice addition. Maybe we have one more slide, maybe just our question slide. Yep. Yeah, some links we can put in. Um, uh, the ABA Practical Tool, I talked about the Alabama Disabilities Advocacy Program. There's also a group called Alabama Wings. It's, it's actually through the Alabama Administrative Office of Courts. Um, it, is all, it is a nonprofit group about supporting decision-making, guardianships and conservatorships and alternatives. And part of their goal and their advocacy is to educate and make sure guardians, conservators, supported decision-makers are doing what they're supposed to do. I think one of the most common things we see as counsel, um, whether somebody's an agent under a power of attorney or guardian or conservator, is people that are in those roles don't really know what to do and maybe they're not doing right. And yeah. I think most of the time it's not intentional. It's just a lack of knowledge. And so Alabama Wings has a lot of good resources. If you're a guardian, you might be a guardian. Well, what do I need to be doing? Do I need to be doing anything with the court? Do I need to report? If I'm a conservator, how do I manage my accounts? How do I balance the checkbook? 
Um, what do I have to do? I've seen conservators, they meant well. They did some things, they commingled funds in multiple yeah. accounts. And you're, not supposed, yeah, you're never supposed to do that ever. But they, they told me that, Jack, I thought it would be easier just to keep it all in one account. No, no, conservatorship is here. Social Security rep pay is here. Very structured. Trust is here. Very structured. Uh, that's what that group talks about, just making sure they're doing right by people. Or if, you, if you're guardian for somebody, you know, you're checking in on them. You're making sure they're being well cared for as part of your, if you have a, you're a fiduciary in any of these roles. And what the fiduciary means is you have a heightened level of care, right? You have a heightened, you are, you're a heightened level of care in those places. Um, extra responsibility is another way to say it. Yeah. And I can imagine, you know, if someone were to approach, you know, a family member and say, Hey, would you be a guardian for my loved one? That's almost uh, kind of taken back. Like, I don't know what that means. It sounds like a lot of, you know, a lot of stuff that I'd have to do. And those, the wings would be a great resource. Like, well, hundred percent. Yes. Great. Absolutely. You, here's what it takes. And, and I've had people ask me that. What does it mean to be a trustee? Somebody asked me to be a trustee. What does it mean? What does it mean to be an executor? What does it mean to be a guardian? Um, it's important to have those decisions on the front end if you're appointing a guardian, because it's nice to know if someone tells you, I can't do it. I don't think I'll be a good fit. It's good to know so that you can look for the next level, next choice. Yeah, great stuff. Um, and then I will go back and screen share here. And then I'm going to give it a, about an extra 30 seconds here. So if anybody has... Um, any last questions here for Mr. Carnan? We are going to have to let him go. He spent a decent amount of time with us today, uh, yeah. and I want to thank him. So It's been great. Um, and I am going to go back. Well, stop sharing that so I can go into my Facebook feed here and just see if there are any questions that I have not seen so far. Just give me one second. And, and – Alex, if you ever have any questions after the fact, you want to email them to me, I'd be glad to respond in an email and you can post them if you like. Um, oh, that sounds perfect. I'm totally okay with that if anybody has any questions. Um, uh, and yeah, so if you guys have questions in the future, go ahead and, and tag them down there. We'll get notified and then we'll kind of forward them to uh, Mr. Carney. And Ms. Gutierrez wants to say thank you for this presentation. I appreciate it. It was delivered using parent-friendly language for caregivers. Great job. Oh, awesome. Well, good night. I promise she's, Ms. Gutierrez is not a plant. She's been great. She's as big a part of this presentation as I was with those great questions. She's been on a past broadcast and I've spoken with her uh, oh, you know, probably for about a year now. So she is very active. Uh, I appreciate you um, because it does, it does help and it makes it better um, because everybody has those questions. And yeah, and I think that's the most important part. And I, I would even go back to, I may have closed with this. I mean, I was, I was a caregiver for somebody else, a guardian. Um, I wasn't their conservator because they had a trust. I think whether you're a guardian, whether you're an agent, whether you're a healthcare proxy, it's just so important to know what your protected person, what their wishes are so that you can honor them in your role. And it's one of those things that, you know, even in my case, you, you might have to make tough decisions. And here's what I'm going to, you know, when I was guardian for somebody, he passed away unexpectedly. And he, we could have had this conversation. We didn't because he was so young and I regret it. I had to make a decision about burial wishes and I had to make a decision about organ donation as his guardian. I wish I would have asked him. I think I made the right decision. I think I did what he would have done, but it was a lesson for me that no matter what our person's level of capacity, we can have those tough conversations that we should all have because, you know, we're adults. 
I mean, whether you whether you have a dis you deemed to be disabled or not, you're still an adult that I think should have a right to decide if you can. Do you have some burial wishes? Obviously, you don't want to talk about that with somebody who's not ready. What do you think about organ donation? I've had really great conversations with adult disabled folks signing an advanced directive about organ donation. They were delighted I asked them. Yeah. Ever been asked that question? And they were like, I would love to do that. No one's ever asked me that. That was great. And what a great thing for mom and dad to hear that, you know, gosh, if something happened, they're happy about being a donor. Um, mm -hmm. So yeah, just throw that out there. Something I learned again, even, even so-called professionals don't always do it right. That's how we learn what to do going forward. Well, I, I want to thank you for the work that you do in the community uh, and the time that you've spent with us here today. Um, another, Dan, Mr. Dan Kessler says, great workshop, and then asks if I can provide a link to the PowerPoint. So if you would be okay with that, I can go ahead and put that in the chat as well. Absolutely. Yeah, uh, absolutely. Uh, and I will go ahead and do that, Mr. Kessler, here um, in the next hour or so once we get done. Awesome. Um, well, Mr. Carney, I appreciate it once again, and uh, we hope you have a great rest of your day. Um, for anybody that's watching now, we are going to be doing kind of once a month with um, Carney Die LLC Law Offices uh, with Mr. Carney and a few of the other people on the team there. Um, and I am extremely excited about this type of content, and I, I hope you guys are too. So if you have questions, please write them down and come prepared for next month. That'd be great. Thank you all. I appreciate it. Thank you, Alex. Yep. I'm going to go ahead and end the meeting now.